going to do things a little differently this morning. Instead of reading the text in the beginning, I'm going to be reading the text as we walk through it together. One of the things I'm hoping as we continue through, really, what is light speed, 35 verses today, is this picture up here is, by the end of the time that we have together, my hope is that when you see this again at the end of the message, it will explode in application for each one of our individual hearts. That when you see this again in about 95 minutes, I'm joking, visitors relax, no, it's, it's 80, um, that it will explode in meaning for you. That is my goal. So with that being said, we'll read the text as we walk through it together since there's so many verses. Let's open in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is a gift and an honor to gather together as your children with at least one thing in common, one thing that transcends all other issues, your Son, Jesus. Full of God, full of man. Second person of the Trinity. Savior of our souls. Lord of our lives. Father, give us more of Him today. Father, I pray that I would teach Your Word graciously, lovingly, firmly, with conviction. But I ask that, Lord, You'd help me not to perform but just to talk and share. We ask that your Holy Spirit be our primary teacher always. And Father, we love you because you first loved us. And so Father, I pray these things and I ask them. And if you agree with that this morning, say amen. amen. Have you ever said to yourself, things are going too well? You ever said those words to you? Like, hey, we finally paid off the car. We have extra income. What's coming, church? What's coming? Got a bill, a big bill, all right? Um, but you ever say to yourself, things are, are just going too well. Something has got to give. We all know that feeling. Well, that's kind of exactly what's going on in the text here in Antioch, all right? Things are going very well for the early church. New churches are popping up all over Galatia and Judea and all over the place. People are coming to faith. Jews and Gentiles who once had nothing to do with one another are coming together centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ and there is fellowship and sacrifice and things are going pretty well. And if I could, as I was reflecting on that this week, if I could be honest with you this morning, I often feel this way about Trinity right now. We have such a good thing going on here at this local body. We come together from all different backgrounds, study the Word of God. Leadership is, is experiencing biblical unity. Christ, I, I, I suspect, is the, is the head of our church and we, we seek unity in Christ rather than conformity to one another. But truth be told, our enemy, just like in Antioch, just like today, our adversary will not allow this to go unchallenged. 
And I highly suspect that what he will use to create trouble in our church, I highly suspect that what he will use to bring division in our church is the same thing that we will see here in the text in Acts chapter 15. So I want us all to pay close attention to what we are about to study here this morning because in this text, if I can, with humility and with personal responsibility, see as one of the greatest threats to the, to the health and the unity of our church today. But within this threat, in this text, also comes the solution to it. So with that being said, let's dive into the text and we'll begin reading it here. Now some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great uh, dissension and debate with them, the, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the mother church where the apostles were still ministering in Jerusalem to the elders concerning this issue of grace plus works. Therefore, being sent on their way to the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren as they were on their way to Jerusalem. And when they arrived there, they received, they received by the church, and the apostles, oh, so good to see them, and the elders, one of them being James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, who is the head stately elder of the Jerusalem church, we'll get there in a moment, the apostles and the elders had re, with, reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who were believers stood up saying, you know what, I agree with these men from Judea. It is necessary to circumcise Gentiles, direct them to observe the law of Moses. Well, there it is, the first problem. Goodbye, free grace. Goodbye, free grace. Goodbye, joy. I'm going to go through these verses quickly here, all right, to get to the meat of the application here this morning. It says this, some of the men came down from Judea. Now, these are highly likely unsaved Judaizers, not to be confused with the Pharisee sect at the bottom of the text in verse 5. This is a distinctly different group here, likely unsaved Judaizers who have not let go of the law of Moses as a means of salvation. Hence, you see they're highlighted in yellow, the circumcised according to the custom of Moses. They could not let go of this requirement. In short, if I could summarize, what they're saying here is salvation is by grace plus works. Salvation is by grace through works. And if I could put it into a picture, you can see it up there. If you're going to come to the cross of Calvary, you have to go through Mount Sinai. You have to go through the law. You have to become Jewish, if you will, proselytes in order to be saved. Now, let me be clear here. I don't think this is the greatest threat to Trinity Baptist Church. I don't see in our future requiring circumcision for new believers. Are you following me here on this? How many here would say, I'm ready to leave the church, all right? That's not what we're looking at here. In fact, let me go a step further. I don't think the threat here at Trinity is that we are going to abandon grace by faith alone. That is not a threat. But there is a powerful principle that is attached to this that will come into work here that I believe is a danger for every church today. And if I can be honest with humility, I think it is one of the primary threats of a healthy church like Trinity right now. 
Now, it is highly likely that these false teachers claimed that the church in Jerusalem supported their idea. I'm sure they walked into there and said, hey, ask the mother church in Jerusalem. They agree with us on this point of grace plus works plus circumcision. And here's the, here's the difficult thing. In some ways, they were right. In some ways, they were right. We see that in the words, some of the sect of Pharisees, there it is in the blue, believed, stood up saying, yeah, we agree with these Judaizers that you do have to get circumcised. So with that complication, the only solution was to send Paul and Barnabas back to the mother church where the apostles still led the, the Hebrew Jews, not the, so much the Hellenistic Jews. I hope that context comes up in your mind. If not, listen to, to, to the, you know, in the past, all right? But they go back to Jerusalem and say, hey, we got a problem here. So off they go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning the issues because apostles are still serving there. Now, I want to stop for just a moment here, because on this journey, we see our first application for all of us here. It says here, on their way to Jerusalem, which, by the way, with an issue that has the potential of splitting the early church wide open. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law of Moses. You have to follow these rituals in order to be saved. And the Gentiles are going, are you kidding me? This has an issue that could split the church, grace plus works. But as they're heading to Jerusalem, look what they do here. They were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to the brethren. Now here's what I I want you to notice here, all right? Mature believers spread joy, not drama. Mature believers spread joy in the church, not drama. Even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, here we have a Savaic issue that could split the church. And as they go through these regions and talk to other believers, they're spreading joy, not problems. Now these men could have gone into these towns and said those dreaded drama-creating words, Brothers, I have a prayer request. Brothers, my heart is breaking. Really? Because it seems like you're eager to share this. How many here have ever been like, I am really reluctant to share this information with you? And it doesn't seem like they're that reluctant. Anyone at all? Like, I got something, right, Paul? I got something you don't know, and it's juicy, all right? And it is a big deal. So will you pray with me, brother? How many here have ever, how many here have ever done that? Let's see how honest we are. I haven't either. Sherry, oh yeah, thank you. I have too, all right? But they don't do that, even though they are carrying an immense amount of drama here. I I really appreciate this here. Paul and Barnabas could have said, you know what, we're on our way to Jerusalem. We're on our way to Jerusalem, and things are ugly in Antioch. They could have used this drama in Antioch to create what we call self-worth. Did you catch that? Here's a practical relational warning within the church. Be careful. Now, you're going to have to be older to understand this. Let's click the button here. Be careful of days of our life Christians. Now, those of you who are young enough, who here has never heard of days of our lives? Anyone at all? I'm not saying the phrase. I'm talking about the soap part. Anyone at all? It's still on? Really? Oh, well, how do you know that, huh? No, I'm just teasing <laughs> 
Oh, Paul, do I have a prayer request. Oh, we got to pray for our sister. What's your name again? (laughs) Beware of drama-inducing Christians. I have, over my young life, learned, it's not funny, learned that the less drama, the better. Can I get a witness on that at all? And the more I get to know someone, and I, I have a responsibility to love everyone, and I don't do that. Um, no, I, as you love everyone, but people who love drama, I tend to just kind of, okay, all right, because I don't need any more purpose or borrowing drama in my life. Beware of days of our lives, Christians, that are constantly creating or involving themselves in drama. And let me just tell you, because drama gives people a false sense of value. Drama gives us a false sense of value. The more drama, the greater the hero we can be, or the greater victim we can be, or the greater judge that we can be. But it really doesn't matter how the drama comes out because it gives us attention and it gives us a perceived false value. And by the way, it's highly addicting. It's highly addicting. Notice what Paul and Barnabas did here. They didn't spread drama. They spread joy. They spread joy of what God was doing. Here's our first application. As a general rule, church, and we're not even into the meat of the application here, and there's so, plus there's a wonderful unpacking here, but I gotta keep going. Here it is. As a general rule, do not spread problems or concerns. How many here would agree problems and concerns kind of spread themselves? Anyone else? You know, they don't need any more help. We don't need any more help lighting the field of the church on fire. All right, here it is. There will always be plenty of concerns and problems. Here it is, like the apostles here, or Paul and Barnabas, spread joy, grace, mercy, and good news. Spread those things, because frankly, that will help with many problems and concerns. So finally, they arrive in Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas, after spreading joy in areas that did not need problems and concerns to be spread, They get to Jerusalem and they tell the appropriate people, Jerusalem, we have a problem. We got these guys over in our church that have come down from Judea and they are telling the Gentiles in in these cities and especially in Antioch, which again is the Las Vegas of the ancient world, all right? Remember all the immorality and what, what, finish the sentence that'll help bring back some of the context. What happens in Antioch, what? stays in Antioch, which we know is a lie because they're now in Jerusalem with news from Antioch, all right? But this is the Las Vegas of the ancient world, Temple of Artemis and all is over there, ritual prostitution, all of that stuff. We got these guys coming into our church telling us Gentiles that we have to be circumcised to be saved. Now, please tell me this isn't true. Please tell me this isn't true because we were told by Jesus Christ himself at least Paul, all right? And we were told by, 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 by you guys that it was grace through faith alone, not of any works lest a man boast. I'm sure, how many here have ever made the simplest statement expecting full agreement from someone and not getting it? Are you following me? Have you ever said, but you know, there's not a cloud in the sky and you go, it's a beautiful day and there's no other answer than I agree. And then someone goes, too hot. Whatever the case may be, I think they're expecting 
full agreement here from the Jerusalem church. After all, this is the great commission they were sent with. But all of a sudden, there it is, a sect of Pharisees who have believed stood up saying, we agree with them. Now it's complicated. Now it gets complicated here. And how bummed out would these Paul and Barnabas been here? Now this is where it gets difficult. These are Pharisees that have come to faith. Unlike the Judaizers up at the top in the green, all right, who are unsaved and are in love with the Mosaic law, these Pharisees are believers. Unlike the Judaizers in verse 1. But here it is. Now I need you to hear this sentence because here's where we begin to grip into the text that brings application into our hearts. They were still insisting on their version of Christianity. They were still insisting on their version of Christianity. How many are thankful that spirit within our hearts is dead in the church today? Amen? No, that's just our nature. We want what we want, how we want it. They wanted their version of Christianity. Now, I don't want you to see these people as intrinsically evil. They're not intrinsically evil. But our genuine believers who have come to know Christ, you can see that in the purple there, they are general, uh, genuine believers who have come to know Christ, but here it is. Now, all of us are going to feel this here. They are a product of their upbringing. How many here are a product of their upbringing? Anyone at all? Every single one of us, to some level, are a product of our upbringing. They found it impossibly difficult to let go of their traditions. To let go of their traditions and distinctive identity. They're not bad people. They're just being pulled strongly by their doctrinal heritage, i.e., you see it in the text, the law of Moses, the last few words there in the blue. They can't let go of it. But truth be told, if they held on to this position, it would eventually pull them away from the doctrine of grace through faith alone, solo grace. By the way, we all know this emotionally, do we not, if we think about this? How many here were raised, and here's a question, how many here were raised so indoctrinated with denominational trappings, so indoctrinated in denominational trappings that to this day you cannot let go of them or participate in certain things because you will feel bad if you do? Anyone at all? Okay, just me. Thank you, Deanna. We know this feeling, all right? Even when the Bible does not speak to it or the Bible doesn't condemn it or this is reality, the Bible will even speak to the other direction but we can't let go because it's how we were raised and it becomes a treasure to us that we cannot let go. I remember when Amy and I were first married, um, we attended a a small uh, Bible church, Berean Bible, right? Small, I always, I, I know I've told you this story. We fell in love with this church. They, that's where I fell in love with that exegetical teaching, going through the word of God verse by verse. But I think what really drew me in is they had donuts and soda that when you got to the church, you grabbed one and you brought it right into the service. And like during the middle of the service, you'd hear this, you know, and it's like, oh, it was Mountain Dew. The spirit of the Lord was rich in this place. All right. This is back when you could drink Mountain Dew and nothing happened. Anyone else remember those days? Now you drink it and you got like burning heartburn and it, it, we're off subject. All right. Let's, we went in there and these people, uh, we, that's 
where I ended up accepting Christ as my personal Savior. And I remember one time a deacon came up to me and he said, this is after church, he came up to me and he goes, hey, want to know if you and your wife would like to go to a movie? Now, we were raised, you guys know this, Shiite Baptists, so we did not ever, <laughs> ever go to movies. And not only are we invited to go, now we fully knew we, we could go, we fully knew that Bible did not speak to these things, but they were asking us to do something that was contrary to our upbringing, and they wanted to go on Sunday. It was like, <laughs> I'm like, why don't you just send me to hell now? Just set me on fire. But we went, all right? We went, Air Force One, it was a good movie, all right? Don't judge me, Harrison Ford in his prime. There's a lot of biblical application there. I don't even know if it was Air Force One. It doesn't matter. Now please know, I want you to hear this, I am not comparing Baptist or, some of you were, who here was raised Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic, all right? You raised Catholic, you come into a Baptist church, (laughs) Good luck, all right? Good luck transitioning with that. I went to a Catholic church the other day. They were doing things. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And I judged them, all right? No. It's it's hard. I'm not trying to doctrinally compare a Baptist stance on dancing with the Jewish position on the Mosaic Law. That is not one-to-one. That's not what I'm getting at here. But I am grabbing the truth here about how we are raised. Our traditions, our heritage, our backgrounds are very, very difficult thing to let go of, even if the Bible permits. How many here remember the name Dr. Howard Hendricks? Anyone at all? Anyone know that? He said this. Let's pull this up there. He said this, and I think we can, let's go ahead and put, there it is. He says this, I repudiated legalism intellectually and theologically 40 years before I refuted them emotionally. That we get. We can feel that. Extra biblical restrictions take their toll. May I speak into this? We all have these kinds of influences. All of us have experienced doctrinal and practical uh, distortions because of how we were raised. I remember, uh, you know, the, 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 the Sunday was the Sabbath, which... It's not, um, but it's the Lord's Day. But I remember I was not allowed to play outside because you weren't supposed to work on Sunday, but I could play in the backyard where no one could see me. Because apparently God couldn't see the backyard. We're all raised with these things ingrained into us, distortions and all that. The challenge is to identify the areas that are distorted and grab this word, areas that are overemphasized. Have, have we as a denomination, I could speak of other denominations, but we're our demo- denomination. Hopefully we're children of God who attend a Baptist church. But within our Baptist dogma, do we ever overemphasize areas of the word of God and minimize others? What's the answer? Of course we do, because we're in the buffet of of, of ecclesiastical preferences. Now, we must identify areas that we overemphasize before we allow them to corrupt the church, our faith, and here it is, relational unity with one another. Trinity, God's word must be our authority, and all of God's words, all of God's people said what? God's word is our authority, not our upbringing. 
Now, I am not devaluing heritage. I'm not devaluing tradition. I'm not devaluing these things. I'm simply trying to elevate the authority of God's word over them. And I love this. And I don't remember where I read this, but it said this. We must be iron rods when it comes to essential doctrine. And we must be soft as reeds in the wind when it comes to discernible issues. The problem therein lies, all of us, how many here would agree with that red box? How many here, with a voice of amen, say, I agree with that. Amen? Amen. You know where we don't agree? What's essential? (laughs) What's essential? To some people, it's a shirt and tie. To others, it's, it's the five solos, all right? That's the battlefield. And, Jane, and this is what's going on in the church because there, there's not just doctrinal integrity at play here. There is relational unity at play here with Gentiles and Jews that are ready to just split the church into oblivion. Herein lies the danger of the early church, and if I may be so bold, it is the primary danger of Trinity Baptist Church today. Any church who has it too good Any church that is experiencing health and growth and strong leadership and all of that stuff, here's what the church then, and frankly, what we will face as well, both theological truth and relational unity are equally at stake here. And there's this temptation to make it a binary choice. I think the naive danger that we have today is that we think both do not need to be equally attended to. And they need equal concern. Both can destroy the church. Both can destroy the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, the distracting false question that well-meaning, unaware, or immature believers ask is, is really this, which is more important in the church, sound doctrine or relational unity? In, in our fundamental, you know, binary uh, desires of our life, of everything being black and white, we want to beat our chests and say, sound doctrine, come hell or high water. But that's really a false question. The true question is how do we protect both at the same time? That is the wise question that an aware believer must ask themselves. So what is the silver bullet to address these oftentimes seemingly conflicting issues? And it's found in the next set of verses here. And after there had been much debate, can you hit backspace for me real quick? No, no, you're fine. We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there because I think it stops there. After they had much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, because Peter likes to talk, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that by the mouth of the Gentiles. We'd hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. Just the exact same way he gave you the Holy Spirit. We call it the Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapter 10. And he made no distinction between Jews. Jews and Gentiles, us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith, not by circumcision. Now, therefore, why do we put, uh, why do we put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which our fathers weren't even able to bear, the law? 
The law never saved a single person. The law was a tutor to show us how guilty we are of our sin. Why would, why would we place on their backs the very thing that crushed ours? But we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. And all of the people kept silent because there's tension in the room. How many here have ever been in a business meeting and there's tension in the room and you got something to say, but you ain't going to say it because you don't want to be torn to shreds. Anyone at all? I've never experienced that, all right? All right, that's a lie. I want to confess my lie. All right, all of the people kept silent and they were listening to Paul and Barnabas as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, for the most part, I'm going to let this passage simply rest, which is another lie because I'm going to unpack it. But it says that in my notes that I wrote here with just a bit of commentary. I want you to notice, first, there was much debate. I just want you to grab a very low-hanging piece of fruit here. It's very important in a culture that thinks people who disagree with them are the enemy. Because people disagree with you and hold different positions, do not make them our enemy. Now that's true politically as well. It's true politically, it's true socially, but it's true within the church. This is the context here. You guys have so many different positions than I do, and I'm hoping someday in your journey and growth you will reach my plateau. All right? You're a pastor's wife. You get it, right? I didn't say it, though. No, but your laugh said it. All right? Uh, I want you to grab this, especially within the church. They were willing to sit down with one another. They were willing to meet with one another. However deep the disagreement, salvation, that both sides were willing to meet, both sides were willing to listen to each other. I'm sure it was passionate. I'm sure there was some yelling and screaming, but at least they got together. Amen? They were willing to, to listen to each other and seek out God. We live in a day that we won't even sit or talk with those we disagree with as if silent, silent treatment and silent protesting, snubbing someone is noble. It is the antithesis of the gospel. While we were yet enemies with Christ, what did he do? He died for us. The thought that a believer would ever not speak to another believer. Let us talk lovingly to one another in disagreement. Not about one another or at one another. Here it is. This little piece of advice that I got about a few months ago changed the way I approached ministry. In times of, dif- in times of disagreement, humanize the person, don't demonize the person. You following that? That person you disagree with, that, oh my goodness, that decision is sin from the pit of hell because their heart is horrible. It's easy to be self-righteous if we immediately demonize. But what if we said, 
That must have been a difficult decision for them. There might be some stress in their life. There might be some circumstances I don't know about. I know for me life is hard. Life must be for them. I know that they are not a demon. They're human. They fail. They, they have difficulties just like me. And rather than demonizing them, I'm going to meet them where I am. And that is a human that needs grace and constantly needs mercy. Amen? Don't demonize the person you disagree with. Humanize them. Then Peter stands up and gives a defense that the Gentiles can be saved without the work of circumcision. He brought up the early days, all the good old days. He's bringing up Cornelius the centurion in Acts chapter 10, 44 through 48, who both he and his family were saved without any rituals, were not saved without any of the law of the Moses, were, were not saved with circumcision. And how that proved that God made no distinction between Gentiles and Jews, cleansing their hearts by faith. And then because of the essential doctrine of the faith, Peter, here it is, is as rigid as iron bars. He says this, we believe that we are saved through grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone. It is a non-negotiable truth. We will not bend. My friends, if you agree with this, please do so. We must never concede and we must never compromise the clear, essential truths of Scripture. Amen? We die on this hill. We die on this hill. Foundational truths. Now, let me just kind of try to define some foundational truths, essential truths. Here it is, the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone. To compromise on these issues would only join us with those who are Christian in name only. And we are not interested in being Christian in name only. We are interested in a relationship with the one and only living God. And we will not compromise on those kind of things. And with that, it became silent. After all, this is Peter, is it not? Would you like to argue with Peter? He'd just soon swing a sword at your ear than talk to you. He's a changed man at this time, but he'll have more struggles. They're silent. After all, this is the leader of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Who's going to disagree with them? Well, the sect of Pharisees who are believers, who are a product of their upbringing, are hoping that someone of great influence will be disagreeing with Peter. And, and, and that's going to be coming up in a moment. There might be one who disagrees with them. The Pharisees are hoping one certain person with much power will disagree with Peter and agree with them, but we'll see that in a moment. And then after Peter makes this declarative statement here in the green, faith and grace alone through Jesus Christ, then Paul and Barnabas get into the mix here, and they speak into the silence that is going on, and they share how God did many signs and wonders. If, if, if it's not by faith alone, why all the signs and wonders among the Gentiles? How could you argue against all these miracles? And not only that, the Gentile Pentecost, where they were given the Holy Spirit the same way that we got it as Jews, and we broke out in tongues, and there was a mighty rushing wind and all of the stuff. And silence filled the room again. And then someone cleared their throat. You ever? <clears throat> this makes me think of Kathy Green. Who here is old enough to remember Kathy Green at Trinity? 
16 years ago, you were deciding whether or not you wanted a 30-year-old pastor who had never pastored a church or not. And there was silence in the room, and Kathy cleared her throat. And she broke the silence, and the vote, it just, it just, I wasn't there, I was told about it. Someone clears their throat in the silence and speaks up. You can almost hear it, you know, just, <coughs> here it is. And it's James. By the way, this is the one the Pharisees were hoping would agree with them. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He stands up. By the way, the presiding, church history tells us, he is the presiding elder and pillar of the Jerusalem church. The hopes of the Pharisaic believers rose sky high. If anyone would defend grace plus circumcision, certainly it would be James and Peter, Paul, and Mary. Sorry, this is how my brain goes. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas would would finally be put in their place. And here it is. And after they had stopped speaking, James clears his throat, that's in the Greek, saying, brethren, listen to me. Simon, Simeon, Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about talking among the Gentiles and the people in his name. With this, he used the words of the prophets, just as, uh, as it was written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it and the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name uh, where am I? Called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that you should not trouble yourselves by turning, um, trouble those who are turning to God among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contained by idols and from fornication and from strangled things with blood in it. For Moses from ancient generations in every city in every city of those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. I slaughtered the reading of that, but you were able to read it as well. Have you ever read a portion of the Word of God and, says, and said to yourself, what in the world does that mean? What is he talking about? Have you ever listened to someone speak and the beginning of their sentence and the end of their sentence seems to have no middle? Anyone at all? You might say, every Sunday morning at 11, Pastor, I've had that. <laughs> it's not that funny. This is where we get the meat. This is where we get the solution to the greatest threat of a healthy church. So here we go. James gets up and he surprises the Judaizers or the Pharisees. And he says, I agree with Peter, Paul, and Mary. (laughs) That wasn't even on purpose. (laughs) That was an accident. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. In fact, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas... They're, they're plagiarizing Amos. And he starts to quote Amos. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and, they will rest- and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. This is from Amos chapter 9. Now, it's not word for word from Amos chapter 9 because theologians believe that James is quoting it from memory, which means there's going to be a slight variation here, which is really neat to see the human trappings within the Word of God. 
that they wrote down what was said. And while we could debate whether Amos is talking about the millennial kingdom at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is John MacArthur's position, which makes it right, all right, no. <laughs> or if he's talking about what's going on present day in Acts, as many Gentiles are coming to the Lord, that would be our Stedman's viewpoint. And we could spend a week studying this, but here's the great news. The outcome is the same regardless of the question. And here is the outcome. Here it is. So we're going to skip weeks ahead of study, which means I get more time today. Okay, good. You followed that. No disagreement. Here it is. God said a long time ago, through the prophet Amos, that Gentiles would be included among his people without having to become a proselyte. This is not what they were expecting. And with that, grab this. James... The Pharisee sect's only hope is as rigid as iron on an essential doctrine, grace through faith alone. He is is as rigid as iron that salvation is by grace alone. But then something interesting happens here because, and I want you to answer this question here, the problem in the church is not just sound doctrine being attacked. There is a parallel problem, which is what? Anyone? Anyone? Starts with you and it ends with inti. Anyone at all? Unity. Relational unity in the church, which is the true question, not the false question. Something interesting happens here. James, the senior elder of the Jerusalem church, shows amazing discernment here because let us remember that relational harmony is just a high of an issue as doctrinal soundness. And he says this, Therefore it is my judgment that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. Now remember Antioch, Las Vegas, the temple of Artemis and all of that stuff that went on by idols and from fornication and from that which was strangled from blood. Just strangled from blood, yes. I don't know about you, but what in the world does this have to do with great faith alone? What does this have to do with anything? And why is he saying it? Well, we kind of have the answer floating in the air, do we not? Now that James has addressed the importance of essential doctrine, grace through faith alone, not of works, he is addressing an equal concern called within the church relational unity. Relational unity. Let me ask you a question. How much glory does God get if his church splinters? with their pristine doctrine. We'll touch on that in a moment. He addresses the equal concern of relational unity within the church. Jesus set a high priority on both. It was Jesus that prayed that the church would maintain unity in John chapter 17. Oh, that the church would be one as, Father, you and I are one. There's an important distinction I want you to see here. James is not addressing the issue of salvation in these instructions in the orange. This is not about salvation, but rather the importance of relational unity. He's addressing both. This list is about having a spirit of sensitivity about breaking fellowship over non-essential truths. Non-essential truths. But let's get to the question that all of us Baptist carnivores have in our mind right now. Is Peter 
instructing that we are not allowed to have steak cooked rare because it has blood on it. No. No, he is not. In fact, there is nothing morally wrong with eating mud. mud. We encourage it. There's a joke in that, but I won't say it. Because I'm wise. Has nothing, there's nothing morally wrong with eating meat with blood in it. Truth of the matter, it's not even about that. It's not even about that. It's about how we should. Now this is huge. We're a page from being done. I need you to follow me because here's where the application to escape the danger that threatens a healthy church the most, both then and now. This is huge. Here it is. We should be willing to restrict our freedoms for the sake of relational harmony in the church. We must be willing to restrict our freedoms for the sake of relational harmony in the church. Gentiles were not subject to these requirements. Gentiles were not subject to these requirements, the Mosaic law. But James requests that they abstain from these practices so not to destroy the harmony in the church that is filled with Jews. And you see it in the last night. From ancient generations in every city, since it's read in the synagogue every Sabbath, the Jews are part of the church and they're everywhere. It's not like you can have a church that has no Jews in it. We are, or Gentiles in it. We are to be one people under God. Now, here it is. James is requesting that they abstain from these practices so not to destroy the harmony of the church that is filled with Jews who could not fathom these things going on. Here it is. I want you to grab this. Concession is biblically right when it does not compromise the essential truth of scriptures. Now, let me give you an exception, and it's right up there, fornication. Fornication. This is a requirement for every child of God to abstain from. But James, we have to grab this. Why did James add this absolute moral law of God into a list of discernible issues? Well, we must hear them in the way the Gentiles in first century Israel would have received them then. Sexual immorality was so common and accepted among Gentiles that sexual indulgences were just simply standard practice. Many Gentiles may have not even yet fully understood God's moral law and, it had, and its deep effects that it would have on a Jewish culture who believed in the sanctity of marriage. Pagan Gentiles did not believe in the sanctity of marriage. Jewish believers did. So what I'm asking you to see here is not the blades of grass. What I'm asking you to see here is the field that James is bringing up. Do not see this as an individual list of do's and don'ts, but a larger idea that is about respecting the practices and differences of other cultures for the sake of church harmony. Respecting other cultures, cultures I can't say that word, and differences for the sake of church harmony. This is such a critical truth that the early church had given it a name. And the name comes from the man who's teaching it, which is called James Clauses. Now that might be a little new term, but it, it, it's... In fact, in Germany, they call it Jacob Clausens. And that's how I want you to remember it. Why is that so funny? Who's laughing so hard at Jacob Clausens? Am I slaughtering German there? How would you know? Let's move forward, all right? 
So what is a James Clause? Here's a James Clause. It is the biblical principle of displaying cross-cultural concern, sensitivity, and even concession on non-essential truths that will will lead to relational harmony within the church. By the way, German name on the end of that. And that's the context here, is it not? Jews, one culture. Gentiles, another culture. James Clause. And by the way, these James Clauses go in both directions. They go in both directions. Both conservative and liberty-minded believers must practice Jacob Clausums on non-essential truths. On non-essential truths. Here it is. I need you to grab this. This is huge. The church must protect itself from inflexibility just as vigorously as it does false doctrine. That's not a Baptist distinctive. In fact, I would say that is the antithesis of the general Baptist distinctives, who, by the way, believes in individual soul liberty within the I and the acronym that is Baptist, but we don't want anyone to practice it. The church must protect itself from inflexibility just as vigorously as it does false doctrine. My friends, the number one thing that is being taught here to a church where things are going all too well, which, which can be applied to us in some ways, is this. Grace must be shown for differences that are not central to the truth of God's word. Grace must be shown. As long as the truth of God's word is not compromised, then diversity of positions should be tolerated. All of us should be willing to restrict our rights, if necessary, to maintain unity in Christ. Because the question is not which one is more important. The question to a healthy, growing church is how do we protect both? And the answer is James Clauses. Which, by the way, the life of Jesus Christ was one giant James Clause. And I'll unpack that in just a moment and we're almost done. We must ask ourselves on every issue that is in front of us, is this a James Clause issue? Is this a foundational truth by which eternity will be determined? Eternity will be determined and the nature of God will be determined. If the answer is yes, we do not bend. Amen? Because God's truth is worth dying for. But if the answer is no, this is not a foundational truth by which eternity is determined in the nature of God, then then be as flexible as a reed for relational unity. Because what testimony and of what gospel power will we point to if we gather together in solid doctrine and everyone hates one another? Or, just as equally bad, we have wonderful relationship and no gospel. If there's one thing that I hope you will hear from my lips, and I'm sure you, many of you have heard it from my lips, and I try to live it out as well, is this. I may disagree with you on many things, but as long as it is not about the essential truths of Scripture, I will not break fellowship with any of you in this room. 
You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, it is incumbent upon me to do as much as possible to maintain fellowship, even up to restricting my own freedoms and my own thoughts. And it is here that we might understand for the very first time something Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And it is this, look at this. Though I am free and belong to no one, grace. I have made myself a slave to everyone, restricted my freedoms. To win as many as possible to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the Jews to those under the law, I became like one under the law, even though I'm not under the law. To win those who are under the law, and to those who have no law, Gentiles, I became like one not having any law. So that I might have and win. My friends, this is one giant James clause. And here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. This verse is a James clause written by Paul to the church of Corinth who learned it from James in Jerusalem all right, in Jerusalem, the head elder, on how to conduct conduct yourself in the church of Antioch. Is not God's word unbelievably consistent? This is how you protect sound doctrine and relational unity. My friends, the essential truth of the gospel must not be compromised. Yet it's believability to the world is based on our unity yet the world looks in on the contemporary church today and sees chaos and factions everywhere and Christ wants us to be one and if we're only going to be one when we all agree with one another that day will never come this is the attack of Satan on a healthy church and his favorite weapon is not overt sin but good-meaning believers who fail to remember that sound doctrine and relational unity are inseparably connected. Let us sit and listen to one another, even in disagreement. And together, there's that picture, I hope it's exploding in meaning, because each and every one of you right here in an individual case are dealing with this issue with another believer right now on different levels. Let us sit and listen to one another and together may we be strong as iron on the essential truth and as flexible as reeds in the wind on personal differences. I love you guys, but only because he loved me first. Did you know that the life of Christ was one giant James clause? Christ never compromised the truth of God's word. He never compromised the will of God. Yet his entire life was a concession so that we might have fellowship with him. We're supposed to do that in the church. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. My friends, how can we point to the power
power of the gospel if it doesn't even bring the church together. May we be walking and living Jacob Clausens. Because our unity means nothing without sound doctrine. And our sound doctrine has no power. Understand what I mean there? If it doesn't bring us together. Gracious Heavenly Father, may we be beautiful in your sight. May we hold on loosely to what we like and cling to what you say. We love you, Lord. May we love one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.